Welcome to the Creatives with AI podcast. This is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. On today's show, we chat with David Wood, an analyst, author, and chair of the London Futurists. In this conversation, we touch on David's list of the seven most important characteristics for success over the next two to three years. After a roller coaster career as a pioneer of the smartphone industry, including co founding Symbian in 1998, David is now a full time futurist speaker, analyst, commentator, and writer. His focus is on potential radical transformations in society and humanity, transformations enabled by accelerating technological disruption and mediated by social and political reaction. David's background is in designing, architecting, implementing, supporting, and avidly using smart mobile devices. This includes 10 years with PDA manufacturer Scion, 10 more with smartphone operating system specialist Symbian, and three years as a CTO, technology planning lead for Accenture Mobility. He's the author or lead editor of 11 books, with his most recent book being The Singularity Principles. Other previous books include Vital Foresight, The Abolition of Aging, Smartphones and Beyond, and Sustainable Superabundance. In 2009, David was included in T3's list of 100 Most Influential People in Technology, and in 2010, he featured in the world's first augmented reality CV, or that's a resume people in the U.S., Alongside his consulting activities, he's the chair of London Futurists, a non-profit meetup organization with over 9,000 members, and he has an MA in Mathematics from Cambridge University and an honorary doctorate in Science from the University of Westminster. And again, as always, links to David's profile, social media, all the books, and everything will be in the show notes on our website at creativeswith.ai. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this informative conversation with David. Hello, David. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I always ask people in the beginning, the very first question is, how are you today? I'm good. I'm pretty busy today. It's turned into a day with lots of meetings, and they're all different, so I'm not getting bored in the slightest. Excellent. Love it. I met you through your co-host of the London Futurist podcast. Um, Callum. And I had a very interesting conversation with him a couple of weeks ago. And um, as you know, you know, we've had a chat already. But before we get into the meat of the podcast, I've obviously done your credentialing and everything at the beginning of the show. But I think it would be really helpful for the listeners to understand a little bit more about the London Futurists and what it's about and what it does, because I think it's the most relevant to the discussion we're going to have today. The London Futurist grew out of a group of people who met in the pub back in the noughties, considering how could we make sense of ideas about the future, ideas that the future might be significantly different from the present, not just more of the same, but with enormous new capabilities, opportunities, and risks. So we said, let's be systematic about these discussions. And it turned into London Futurists around 2008, 2009, when I started running it. And from then, it's grown into, by some measures, the largest meetup in the world, which has a focus on foresight. We tried to be systematic, weighing up without too much of a future shock, that is too much of a wow or too much of a yuck, but more thoughtfully, what are the credible pass forwards? And out of these credible paths forwards, which of them could be desirable? 
Which of them can we accelerate and which of them should we try and slow down? So a reasonable view. Well, I think everybody should become a part-time futurist because the future's, in a sense, coming faster than it ever did before. When I was young, the future was what might happen in Star Trek in the 23rd century. There would be weird things called communicators in the 23rd century. Turns out communicators arrived a lot sooner, and they don't do everything that Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock could do with them, but a heck of a lot has come sooner. So we all need to be better at sorting out the science fiction from the science fact about future possibilities. I've seen that they're trying to develop something like a tricorder that they could have to just scan a body and it would be able to tell you the general condition to you. Is that something you've talked about on the on your podcast or, or in London Futurists at all? So we haven't talked directly about that in the podcast. There has been X prizes to help people develop something similar to a tricorder. We're not quite there yet, but the vision that you could pick up key information about somebody's health from relatively small signals is something that is progressing by leaps and bounds. So you can pick up things from sensors on the skin. You can pick up things from various cameras. And we're not quite there yet, but in 10 years or so, we should have much more early warnings of possible adverse changes in our physical health and possibly even before then, advanced warning of adverse changes in our emotional or psychological health. When we spoke before, one of the things that you mentioned when we were talking was that you have sort of an idea about the seven most important characteristics that you think people are going to need to be successful over the next few years. And I thought that that, that list seemed really interesting, and I thought maybe you might want to share that with the listeners and, and some thoughts around that. Do you think you'd be okay for that? Absolutely. This grew out of the question I often got when I said, in the future, jobs will be changed. Careers will no longer be quite so predictable. Everybody kept wanting to ask me, well, tell me which careers will be safe. And I wanted to say no career would be unchanged. And then the question come back, well, which skills will we need regardless of the careers? And that's what's turned into this list of a number of characteristics, which I think will be more important in the future than they've been in the past. More important in the future because the pace of change is going to be faster, the uncertainty is going to be greater, the diversity is going to be larger. And so they've always been important, but they will be more important from now on. Yeah. And where, so where do you want to start? Well, the first one on the list is the ability to learn, to learn fast, because no matter what you may have learned in previous jobs, no matter what you may have learned in school or from previous podcast episodes, Almost certainly that's not going to be the entirety of what we're going to need to know for any new skill area. So unless we can learn quickly, we're going to be left behind. And that is complicated by the fact that often we can't learn because we got something else in our minds, which was the ideas and skills and processes that used to be important in our lives. And we are reluctant to give them up for good reason, because they are hard fought. They served us well in our lives, but more and more, we're going to find that yesterday's processes, yesterday's principles, yesterday's tools, yesterday's frameworks are impediments to grasping the new possibilities of the future. So we're going to need to be able to be quick at unlearning and quick at learning. And we can use technology, by the way, to help us learn more quickly. So figuring out which podcast to listen to, 
figuring out how to interact with AI. So we ask the good questions that can produce reliable information rather than hallucinated information and so on. More generally, technology that will put us into a learning mode. All of that is going to be an increasingly important skill. So number one off the list is learning how to learn, fast learning. I had a long conversation in, with Dr. Stephen Watson from Cambridge University about the changes in education. And he was saying something similar. It's, it's going to become increasingly important for students to, to be able to discern what, in, what information is correct because it's going to be coming from so many different directions. And we're seeing that already. But AI is going to make it even worse. And until we have some controls or, or some sort of fact-checking over some of the information that comes out of a large language model, for example, like ChatGPT, it's, it could be really difficult for people to know that they're getting accurate information. It's fine if it analyzes something that you've written and you can say, hey, summarize this for me to make sure that it's saying what you want it to say or check this for me or whatever. I, I, that's a different type of activity. But if you say, tell me about X, you do need to be able to, to figure out if it's telling you what, something that's true or not. So 100%, I agree with you on that one. So AI will make that problem worse and it will make it better. And that may sound uh, daft, but there will be skills that AI, there will be methods that AI puts at our disposal to allow us to more quickly figure out when something is not properly validated, when something is contradictory, when it doesn't make sense. So if we can figure out which tools we can use, then we'll be less likely to be led astray by the carefully constructed false narratives. On the other mm -hmm. hand, the people who are creating false narratives aren't going to be staying still they're going to realize that their previous set of false narratives can easily be detected. So they're going to ramp up their intelligence. They're going to make their false narratives more beguiling, more reassuring, and they'll lead people in before we get stabbed in the back, as it were. This is a sad situation that we're in with this arms race between deception and uh, spotting the truth out of deception. But this is what AI will enable, and we're going to have to be able to cope with it. We are 100%. And I think this is part of the reason why you know, I wanted to have the podcast in the first place was to start having these discussions now so that we could bring it to the fore and just make sure that people were aware of the issues. So, yeah, totally agree. And I think that sort of segues nicely into where I think you're going next, which might be Agile. Well, there's no complete canonical order through my list of seven. What I think I'll bridge to next since we've had a particular discussion, is collaborative, collaboration, or what I call it, insightfully collaborative. Insightfully collaborative. Because yeah. if we're trying to make sense out of the skills and issues and opportunities and challenges, technology can help us to an extent, but people can help us as well. There will be people who have studied a little bit further than us in various fields, people who can provide common sense. Sometimes people can provide a creative alternative viewpoint. People can help us then to be more considered and figuring out who we should be collaborating with, who we should be spending our time with is vital. Often people can see the faults in each other's thinking, whereas we're sometimes blind to our own blind spots. But if you work with the right community, the right partners, then they can be the people who can touch us on the shoulder and say, hang on, David, I know this is very important to you, but here's another way of looking at it and say it in the way that is going to 
make me pay attention to it rather than angrily push it away and say, you don't understand me. So finding the right set of collaboration partners is key. Finding the right communities is key. But again, as for learning, many of the collaborations and partnerships will have a limited shelf life. It may be that a community may lead us to a certain level of understanding and then potentially hold us back too. So we're going to need to keep on our toes there as well, not to get into too much of a comfort zone. These guys seem to be reliable. These guys seem to be helpful. And sometimes we might need to jump to yet another wave of disruption. Do you think that's where the human strength is really going to come in is from that consultative and collaborative aspect? How we're going to get the best out of the future possibilities is by using a whole range of intelligences, including the artificial intelligence, including individual critical intelligence, and using this wider collaborative intelligence. I think that's going to make a huge difference, whether we are just an island by ourselves, disconnected from the really interesting narratives, or locked into our own echo chambers, or whether instead we are uh, building bridges to these most fruitful sources of information. So we need to work out where do we want to spend our time? It's sometimes said that we are the average of the five people with whom we spend the most time. I've no idea how that's calculated. It's probably just only true in a very qualitative sense, but I think it is, uh, in a certain level, uh, an insight. We should be careful who we spend so much of our time with. That sounds heartless, but if we aren't careful, we will end up limited by people who previously were inspirations to us, but who are now no longer the spur to the growth that we are truly capable of. I tend to agree with that statement as well, and I think it's just something that you notice as you get older in your life. I'm not sure there's any actual data on it, but I think everybody sort of agrees that that feels like it's right. If you get in with a new group of friends or a new group of people, or you get a new job or something like that, and maybe you're stretching yourself into a a new role or something different, and then you know, you start to adopt, you know, you make those new friends and you start to sort of adopt their attitudes, which is a, which can be a positive thing. But like you said, it can also be a negative thing. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that one. So where do we go next? Well, we skipped over number two on this list, which is agile. Agile sounds like a buzzword. There's been a heck of a lot said about agile since it was introduced in the world of software more than 20 years ago. I'm a big fan of Agile. By that, I mean an ability to break down a large, complex, daunting challenge into something small that you can work on quickly and that you can do well without trying to solve all the problems associated with it. So you break down this uncertainty into a tangible, accessible piece, and then you get feedback. What have you done? Is it useful? Did it actually meet expectations? Is it valuable? And in this feedback, again, it's important to have the right partners or the right reviewers. It's also important to be able to say, okay, I'm hearing what you're telling me, and of what I produced, 75% isn't that interesting, but 25% is really interesting, so maybe I should pivot to that. So this ability to break down a large task, such as making sense of some of the disruptive changes we're talking about, the disruption of new forms of AI, the disruption of new forms of decentralized technology, the disruption of new types of business models, 
It's too hard to get our heads around all of that in one go, so let's split it up into chunks. And we can look at some of the most successful product introductions in history, such as the iPhone, which seemed to come out of nowhere. In fact, it came out of a long series of trials beforehand, and launch was not trying to meet all the features that an iPhone could include, although it had a lot. There were many things that were deliberately omitted. The first iPhone had no 3G. The first iPhone had no ability to forward an SMS message that you'd received. You couldn't even copy it. There was no forward-facing camera. There was just a rear-facing camera. All of these things, shocking now, because Apple, uh, in subsequent iterations, subsequent sprints, made, the, made good the emissions. But they managed to focus on a smaller task, which is still a large and difficult task, but they focused on a small task and then built on that. In the same way, when it comes to making sense of some of these very daunting challenges, risks, and opportunities, we need to be able to carve a small bit off, prototype it, try and figure out what's significant, what's not significant, get feedback from our peers, and then not be afraid of failing, not be afraid to say, well, actually, this didn't turn out at all as I expected it. I'm glad you said that at the end. It's what I was thinking the whole time, and, it's, it, and this bleeds into a, another point that you're going to come to later. Certainly when I was younger, and, and I'm sure when you were younger as well, we experienced something very similar, which was in school, we never had this concept of sort of fail. It's okay to fail and to kind of move forward. We were very much encouraged to do the best that we could. And if you didn't do well at something, then you, that was a bad mark against you. Whereas, I mean, I watch my son in school now and the things that he does, and it's always fail fast and fail fast isn't necessarily good on its own. Just if you're just failing over and over and over and over and over again and doing it really quickly, that's maybe not the best thing. But, but the idea that it's not a bad thing to not be successful or to do something and to have it fail, that that actually is a learning exercise and that you have the, the resilience to move forward. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I, that all feeds into the agile working. And I think you, you break things down, you try it. If it doesn't work, pivot. I don't think we as a society were even ready to do that back in the 80s or the 70s. It just, the, the culture wasn't like that. But that's something that I think that the tech, this sort of tech revolution has brought that maybe is a good thing to society because there's not so much pressure on everybody anymore. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. So we can learn a lot from our failures. And there's a saying that successful people have more failures than failures do in the sense that they're able to learn. They stretch themselves. It didn't quite work out. And they're able to realize new things as a result of what failed. But this will not work unless, what's one of the phrases here? We can fail forwards. In other words, we don't try and put it out of our mind. Hey, this didn't work. Let's never mention it again. It's too embarrassing. We're able to say, well, this sort of worked, but didn't quite work. Now, what can I learn from this? Okay, this method was actually quite important, but it just couldn't work in this situation. So let's be able to learn from these failures. Failing fast means that you figure out ahead of a big project where it could fail. And you don't spend a lot of time doing all the simple stuff. And then at the end, you realize, no, it could never have worked. You analyze it. So you need a bit of architecture here. You need a bit of uh, imagination. You need to realize this is a critical point. It's better to get feedback about this early. That's the fail fast part. And there's also a fail smart part, which is we don't celebrate every failure. We should think before we do things. 
sometimes there is a kind of an excuse, well, we're just rushing and of course we're going to fail and that's all right, we'll pick ourselves up. If you do think in advance, sometimes you can avoid that unnecessary failure. So I don't endorse the Silicon Valley mantra of move fast and break things, particularly because sometimes when they break things, they are broken in a very terrible way. But I do endorse the mantra of being smart, figuring out which experiments need to be done sooner rather than later, controlling the fallout of bad experiments so you don't want to test uh, something really devastating on a very large uh, environment. You, know, you don't test whether a particular nuclear bomb might work by dropping it into the middle of a heavily populated area. It's kind of extreme case, but there are similar, similar lessons to that. So we have to fail in a wise way. But we won't be able to do that if we are afraid of failure. We won't be able to do that if our bosses are calling us out for failures. We won't be able to do that if our bonuses depend on always exceeding what we said we would do. That leads people into a much more defensive frame of mind. So people should be rewarded for figuring out important lessons, even if the lessons were such and such a thing doesn't work. Because it's on the basis of knowing what doesn't work that we are more able to move forwards more quickly. Yeah. I just, I, I had a thought while you were talking about that as well. Do you think that that's something that traditionally has come from higher education in that as you progress more through higher education, you're encouraged to do more experimenting, you do research, that sort of thing. And so as you do that, that's something that you just learn through that process that maybe you don't get so much in, in uh, certainly in not in primary school, but even in secondary school or high school in the US, you're still not encouraged to experiment that much. So I'm just curious, I just wonder if... There are theories of education which are conflicting with each other here. Some teachers want students to learn by themselves. That can be a slow process if you let them work out by themselves the theory of calculus, the theory of uh, Newtonian mechanics. You know, it's going to take them a long, long time to work out all of that. So that's not what I've got in mind, but there should be opportunities for people to learn some of it for themselves and have insights. So it's, it's more challenging to teach it that way, but it's much better to teach it that way. And what sadly happens often in relatively early days in education, if you ask a group of five-year-olds to come up with creative ideas to solve a particular wacky problem, they can often come up with a long list. If you ask the same people when they're 10 years old, they have a much smaller, more carefully restricted list of solutions. Why? Because they've had some of that wild uh, brainstorming knocked out of them because they have been told, you know, you've got to conform. And what we hear at school, don't copy. And in reality, that's how we, we learn. Now we're being told, don't uh, use chat GPT to write your essays. Well, in the real world, we might use chat GPT to write some of our essays, at least to help us overcome their blank page syndrome. So we better learn how to do that in schools as well. So some of what you described as being applicable in later stages of higher education needs to go back in at much earlier phases. So what's next on the list then? What do you want to do next? Comes back to the question of what skills do people need to survive in a disruptive, fast-changing job market? I've talked about collaboration, but there's a particular kind of collaboration which transcends what I've spoken about before. It's the collaboration of politics. When I say politics, I mean small p politics in the sense of cooperating and getting on with people you don't always like very much. You have to 
be able to build bridges to people that maybe you would prefer not to cooperate with. You've got to sometimes hold your nose to form a coalition, which can be productive. But I've actually mainly got in mind this large P politics, which means that we must all of us get involved in guiding our political leaders away from just reiterating some of the policies and ideology of the past into understanding the seriousness of the changes facing society and that some of the old answers, hey, you just need to educate yourself more quickly, they're part of the answers. But frankly, there's going to be a lot of people who are not going to be able fairly soon to earn as much as they had expected from the skills that they have at their disposal. There will be an increasing, people call this frictional unemployment in the sense that there may be some jobs, but the jobs require a heck of a lot of retraining, more retraining than is actually feasible. They require relocating. They require people being flexible with their identity. They might have assumed that they were such and such a kind of person and they will have to change. So there's frictional technological unemployment, but increasingly there's also what economists call structural technological unemployment, which is even if you are prepared to learn, even if you are prepared to move, even if you're prepared to alter your own self-identity, you still won't be able to get the work as you had expected it. Because machinery of various sorts, robots, software, automation, AI, will be doing more and more of what formerly you got paid for to do because you were a creative genius. Well, there's going to be creative genius AI software before long. So how do we cope with this? Well, we're going to have to redistribute the fruits of technological abundance more than before. We're going to have to figure out ways in which people who can't earn a living are still able to participate in a good quality of life. And that may be partly involving a universal basic income, but I think that's only the start of the conversation. There's a lot more to be had. So we've got to get our politicians thinking about these disruptive changes rather than just saying, we've seen this before, we know what the answer is, work harder, get on your bike, move to a different part of the country. These answers are no longer going to be sufficient. We're going to need to restructure the social safety net in quite a radical way. It's going to be a big challenge. It's a lot of people always point out to me that, oh, this is just another revolution. We've had these in the past and everybody, new jobs will come available and they'll just find a new job. My point to them is, is always that most of the revolutions that we've had in the past have all been related to physical labor. So it's getting people out of the fields or getting people better conditions in, in, in manual labor jobs. And the jobs that those people were able to move into were knowledge-related jobs. So it was more of a white-collar, I would say, in, in sort of American parlance, a white-collar type job, whereas nothing has ever come for the white-collar job before. And that's what's so different. And I think what's so frightening to a lot of people is, is they realize that where do we go next? Like the only place to go, if, if you take a lot of the knowledge work out, it's, it's not going to get rid of everybody. But if, if you say 60% of knowledge workers you know, in the next maybe decade are out of work, that's a very fast, very short time period for that to happen. And like you said, like, where do they go? What, what do they do? How do you retrain those people? Because everybody, we've all been sent to university. We've all been told, you know, this is the thing that you need to do. And now we need to go back and do maybe physical, more physical jobs or service jobs or something. And I think that's where the, you're absolutely right. And this, there's going to be major disruption 
And I, I don't know how the, uh, it's going to take a huge shift in perception of what we think we need to be doing and what we value as work, I think. There's an analogy here with unemployment of horses. I don't know if you've had this covered before. As early as 1829, our London futurist, I call him a London futurist, he was a famous cartoonist, George Cruikshank, he drew a picture of horses panicking at the sight of steam engines. And in this picture, which hangs, I think, in the British Library, the dogs are saying, hey, we're going to have plenty of horse meat to eat. This is their vision for the future of horses. But for most of the next century, that was a bad prediction because horses actually were employed more and more as the Industrial Revolution proceeded. Why? Because although there were railways and steamships that were mechanized, you needed to use horses to transport people to the railway stations or to the steamships. And there was more and more horses. The population of horses grew, working horses grew significantly faster in America, where people have done a lot of research on this, grew a lot faster than the population of humans. And in 1872, there was an outbreak of a disease affecting lots of horses, and the economy really spluttered. The horses were so critical. If you look at 1903, there's a famous photograph of New York, Easter, Easter Sunday. You see horses and carriages everywhere. And in one small corner of that photograph, there is a very early horseless carriage. But previously, people had predicted. Some people said horses will be driven out of roads as well. And others said, don't be ridiculous here are why there will always need to be horses on roads. First of all, these horseless carriages, they're far too heavy. They'll damage the pavement. Secondly, they're far too noisy. Third, they emit horrible smoke. They're going to be unacceptable in cities. Fourth, they're a fire hazard. There's going to be sparks flying out from all over them. So lots of good arguments as to why horses would have safe jobs in the indefinite future. But then Henry Ford cracked the problem of producing effective Safe cars at a relatively low cost, and if you roll forward 10 years just from 1903, there's another famous photograph taken in roughly the same place, which shows horseless carriages, or as we now call them, motor cars, almost everywhere. And if you zoom into a small part of that picture, you can see one solitary horse still there. So in a short space of time, horses no longer were economically viable, except for a much smaller set of occupations, such as recreational horse riding or uh, competitive horse riding. And as you said, in the past, we humans, we have benefited from the same sort of thing that benefited horses for most of the 19th century. Technology opened up new opportunities, new jobs as companions to technology. But eventually, the stuff that we think we are special at, creativity, compassion, common sense, general knowledge, that is going to be done by the AIs as well. And within 10 years, roughly the same as what happened between these two pictures in New York that I mentioned, suddenly more and more people are going to be displaced. And it's happening already. There are more people in despair. And sometimes they blame immigrants. Sometimes they blame globalization. And partially these factors may have something to do with it, but it's mainly automation is allowing successful companies to take larger share of the winnings, leaving a much smaller share left for everybody else. So we're going to have to get involved in politics to fix that. And to deal well in politics, indeed to deal well with all our collaboration, another skill I think has got to be in the forefront 
is the skill of being trustable, the skill of talking with integrity, the skill of being able to fully convince our partners, our customers, our clients that we are on their side. Because increasingly, people are going to be let down. Increasingly, people are going to feel, I thought I could trust this AI provider, but it turns out they've just been scraping all my data. And actually, I'm just a, I'm just a customer to them. I'm or rather, I'm just a product to them. And there's going to be more and more anxiety there. So whereas in the last 20 years, what skills technology company needed to bring in was the skill of design so that products weren't just high performing. They could be easily understood by ordinary people. And the companies like Apple, whose chief designer, Johnny Ives, reported straight to the CEO, Steve Jobs, the ones that had these great design experts were the ones that often did incredibly well. Well, nowadays, I'm not telling companies you need to find yourself a chief design officer. I'm telling companies you need to find a chief trust officer. Not necessarily one person, but people who cut corners in their work, who cut corners in communications, they should not be rewarded because they're going to store up more problems. 100%. And I think there's a... It's in, So it's interesting. First, I guess, first of all, I should go back and tell everybody that I haven't seen this list before we talk. So this, the list is new to me as well. So I, I, I hadn't seen this until about 30 seconds before we got started. And one of the questions actually that, or one of the points that I wanted to bring up was companies and advertisers talking a lot about trust when they talk about AI. And there's a, my sort of slightly cynical view of it, and, and, and I've been in and around the ad industry for a long time, probably a couple of decades now. and. I don't think that anybody has any trust with a company or an organization these days. I think every seems to me that everybody's very cynical about those relationships that most people seem to think that like exactly like you said that companies sort of do see them as just it's they're just money and customers. They don't they say that they want you to trust them and that sort of thing, but I don't think anybody really has that feeling. And I think AI is only now contributing to that. And a lot of people are starting to say, well, I want to know, I, I need to know if you're using AI. So even if it's somebody on their chat bot that's on, you know, they say it's a chat bot, but it may actually just be a real human, but nobody knows. And so now everybody just assumes that it's an AI bot and that there's not anybody real behind it. I'm skeptical about how easy it's going to be to do that. I think trust is probably one of the most is going to be the hardest thing on this list to do is, is really to, to try and bring that back with social media and everything that's happened and the whole fake news. And then you get deep fakes and all of that. I think we're going to reach a point where no one's going to be able to trust anything, but then maybe we might, maybe that might flip it somehow so that we then find a way to do that. In an ideal world, the kind of uh, AI in our head the AI that might be speaking on our headphones, the AI in our phone, will be alerting us to attempts to mislead us. It will be saying, well, already it does. It sometimes says, don't click on this link. You think it's from your bank. It's from somebody trying to steal your bank details. Increasingly, they will be interfering from time to time. And we need to have confidence that this really is on our side rather than just stalking up more advertising dollars for companies X, Y, and Z. So there is a strong case that some of this technology needs to be 
democratized, decentralized, released in an open sense so that everybody can study it and everybody can, well, we won't all be validating it, but there'll be enough people who look at it and say, you know what, I can see how it's working. Uh, believe me, there are no back doors in here. So that transparent inspection will be part of it. Another part of it will be there will be track records. So when people say, trust us, trust us, and then it turns out that what they said was incorrect and they knew it was incorrect or they should have known it was incorrect and they were just being too hasty, that will be well known. And so I think there will be reputations broken. And people may make an individual mistake and should be able to recover from it. But if it's a systematic or a characteristic thing, then that will be flagged up. So that's how I'm hoping that we're going to re retain the ability to get the best out of AI, because though we're talking about many disruptions and challenges and tensions and stresses that AI will bring, real in real, uh, the broader picture is this can allow more services to be available at much lower cost and much higher quality, better healthcare, more reliable analysis of our data, as we briefly spoke about with the reference to the tricorder earlier. Ex Education accessible much more widely, entertainment accessible much more widely, higher quality accommodation, which is built in better ways, more robust, more reliable. So we should be getting huge benefits from AI. So I don't want people to be frightened off from it, but we're only going to get these benefits if we have a safety mentality that's right up there alongside the engineering and innovation mentality. That's the trust spirit coming through again. I like it. So we've cantered around most of these lists. There's one that we sort of left to last, which I'm not quite sure what to call. When I say it's to be astute, it means that you've got the right big picture framing of things, which will allow you to make more sense of what's happening. And so that's why I spend a lot of time in my own work trying to fill in the underlying details for why pace of change is going to accelerate rather than just be seen as an anomaly. But alongside knowing some of the big picture things, it's also very important to be aware of what we don't know. Sometimes people say cleverness is knowing a lot. Wisdom is knowing what you don't know. And I go further. It's very important to know what you don't know that would make a big difference if you had a good solution for it. So these are the key open questions. Why is it important to have that in your mind? Well, then when you listen to somebody talking or when you're flicking through your social media feed, your attention will be drawn more, hopefully, to things that are relevant to these key open questions than merely to things which are funny or entertaining or cool or disgusting or whatever else might grab our attention. So let's have these key open questions foremost in our minds, and then our own subconscious and the AIs working on our behalf will be more likely to come up with solutions to us. And that is the key in reality, to fast learning as well. Because we don't want to just learn everything. It's impossible. But we need to know what we need to learn, and then we need to be able to learn it quickly. And if we can do that, I think there's less chance that we will be, once some of the left-behinds, there'll be more chance that we are still able to play an active, proactive part in reshaping business and society, human trajectory, more likely that we'll be able to steer it into what I call a sustainable superabundance rather than potentially a global collapse, which may happen if we are distracted, if we are intimidated, if we are confused. Where do you think this all leads? I know you're a glass half full kind of person about it, obviously with caveats to say we need to pay attention, but sort of if you had your 
you know, 10 years from now, if you're looking back at this conversation, what, what do you think you would be surprised by? Or can you even, can you even guess? Do you know what I'm getting at? It's kind of, if you had your crystal ball, where do you think 10 years from now, do you think actually it's not going to be nearly as far along as we thought that it was going to be? We're all just getting excited about a bunch of nothing. And yes, it's going to have an impact, but it's not going to be nearly as much. Or is it going to be literally there are thousands of people out of work and we're in, we're in a much, a much more complicated situation? You can't trust elections because you can't trust anything that you see or hear online or on TV. Is it, do you see it the more sort of dystopian future or do you, I mean, again, you're glass half full, so I think you're approaching it from that standpoint a little bit, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking for the, the crystal ball on what you think might happen. Though as a futurist, the first thing I should say is there are no crystal balls or what you can see through of the course. crystal ball is things like the movements of the planets and the timings of astronomical eclipses, but you can't even predict ahead of time whether you're going to be able to see the eclipse because you don't know whether there's going to be clouds there or not. So there are some things we can predict, but mostly we can't. But we can look at scenarios, and I do anticipate a range of scenarios for the future, and if I were to have some measure on them, very few of these future scenarios are simple extensions of where we are today, in which we're roughly having the same conversation with a bit faster and maybe with virtual reality thrown in and maybe with uh, some other additions. I don't think that's likely. I think there are two broad families of scenarios that are more likely. One of them is this global collapse, which I rate as about a 30% probability. So that makes me a, definitely a 30% glass empty guy in which we have failed to cope with the stresses and strains of society. And I'll say more in a minute about what that failure might involve. And there's about a 60% chance, I'm a 60% glass fool guy, uh, that we will, through a lot of hard work, through a lot of ingenuity, through a lot of people standing up and doing the right thing, that we will get to this much better world in which most people don't have to work long or maybe don't have to work at all, but we'll still have a higher quality of life, higher quality of health, higher quality of experience than we do now. What can go wrong is if we lose some of the key aspects of society which have led us forwards, which is an understanding and respect for science, an understanding and respect for openness. And by openness, I mean you're allowed to criticize orthodoxy. You're allowed to criticize the establishment experts. You're allowed to form businesses different from what prevailing wisdom says you should do. And in some parts of the world, we are seeing a reversal of respect for science. We're seeing the form of science. We're seeing people in lab coats and with uh, credentials after the name, but they are not talking science. They are talking it more in the language of science rather than actual science. We are seeing people making up their minds about the validity of possible cures for COVID based not on any scientific analysis, but based on whether or not Donald Trump seems to have endorsed it. And depending on whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, you'll decide that you like this treatment or don't like that treatment. We're seeing more and more countries in the world where the people in power say, you know what, these democratic norms, they're a pain in the ass, they're slowing us down, we need to make ourselves president for life, we need to lock up the opposition, we need to be able to spy on what all the opposition politicians are doing. And if we have more of that, we will not have the steps forwards which are possible. So we have to fight for rationality, we have to fight for openness, 
we have to fight for good politics, which is why that's high up on my list. But I don't want to criticize all politicians. Politicians are like us human beings. We are a mixture. Sometimes we are angelic. Sometimes we are diabolical. The politicians in the UK's House of Commons, sometimes they are in terrible yaboo forms, pouring and shouting in a tribal way. But on other occasions, they are actually very thoughtful people, open-minded. And we have to encourage them to be more open-minded and thoughtful and less tribalistic. And if we can do that, if we can get the politicians targeting public funding in a more generally useful way, grabbing the opportunities, uh, investigating safety and reliability and trustworthiness, as well as just raw performance, then there's a chance we will steer this into a much better future. I like it. That's a good positive note to end on. I'm, I'm conscious of your time. I know, I know you have a call to follow up on. And as I said before, I'll have links to all of your bio and your books, and we didn't get into any of that. But is there anything that you'd like to let people know about? Are you doing any appearances or do you have anything maybe you know, people might want to go to the London Futurist and join that or, or whatever, but is there anything that you want to mention before we go? London Futurist exists as a podcast where Callum Chase and I generally have a half an hour discussion with a guest each week. We're having good feedback. We're not the only good podcast in town, of course, but we have a special angle. So look out for London Futurist podcast. We have meetings from time to time, some online, some in the real world. Another thing I'm doing currently, and I'll be doing it for another month or so, maybe two months, maybe longer, is a survey with many rounds. So round one's undergoing now onto the hard open questions about the transition to artificial general intelligence. What are the scenarios in which things will go well? What are the scenarios in which things will go badly? So currently there are 26 questions in this round one. I've got a whole bunch of answers and based on the answers, which isn't, I'm not so much interested in somebody's opinion in terms of a percentage. I'm more interested in the explanations they give for their answers. So based on these explanations, we will have the seeds for a round two in which we will dive into the areas that are still controversial, unclear, or unsolved. So I'm applying my own idea here of an agile process in sprints to reach a better understanding and what bigger question is there than how we're going to cooperate potentially with an AI that outsmarts us in every single dimension. Sounds great. Is that something that's still open or is it the is first still open? It will be open, as I said, for another few months. So I'm not sure exactly when this okay. will come out, but if you're listening to this anytime before the end of August, please track down via my social media, London Futurists and or DW2. That's the number two, DW2 on Twitter. You will find an updates to where that survey is happening. And I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. So David, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Um, I think your idea of the seven concepts and characteristics that people need is spot on. I think if we if we all aspire to be better in all seven of those areas, then we might just be able to make it through this thing. Great. And start with one. Don't try all seven at once, but let's uh, keep them all in mind. Thanks very much. Thanks, David. Speak to you soon. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, 
then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on them all. And follow us on social media. We're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn, but we're the same handle everywhere, which is at Creatives with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are our two main platforms, and it really helps other listeners find the show, and it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure. So it'd be amazing if you could help us with that. If you've got any questions, topic suggestions, guest recommendations, feel free to send us an email. The best email is hello at creativeswith.ai, or you can shoot us a message on social media. Either one is fine. We love hearing from all of you, and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future. And the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from and what things you'd like us to ask and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So please use that. Let us know what you want to hear, and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us. And we really appreciate it. So thanks very much. That's it for today. So until next time, take care, everybody, and stay curious.